The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to a monumental episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. I'm Adam Pope. And I'm Michael Canetti. And we've been conducting these interviews for four years now. We've talked to so many former Wizard staffers, but it doesn't get any bigger than the big cheese himself. Yes, the time has finally come for us to talk to the publisher and founder of Wizard, the Guide to Comics, who is also an entrepreneur that's done everything from running successful pop culture conventions, founding MMA leagues, even finding himself in the world of fine art. So we're truly amazed to be welcoming to the show, Garib Sheamus. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. I've been following you guys and, you know, I just wanted to get that anticipation to build up, you know, until oh. this very moment in time. B- believe it. The followers have been like begging for it. We've been super excited. I feel like this makes us legit now by having you on the podcast. Like, wow, we're we're the real deal now. This is kind of cool. It's, it's super exciting. The wizard story begins with the Seamus family. And what can you tell us about your parents' decision to open like a trading card shop and comic book shop to how this grows into what wizard becomes? Yeah, so it it all started with the Seamus family. Uh, You know, I have three brothers and we all grew up collecting sports cards and then ultimately comic books, but more sports cards when we were kids because flipping was very big. And I was the number two. I had an older brother than me, then a younger brother. And we were very, very close in age. And then I had another brother that was about three, four years younger. And it got to the point where we would flip and we won a lot of cards and, you know, but then we kind of gave up on it a little bit. And then my little brother, Steven, who's not so little anymore, uh, he wound up buying and selling our cards and making a lot of money at the shows and at the stores. You know, he was trading our, uh, our, our all the cards that we had collected. And then it became like a family hobby where we'd go to the stores to buy comic books and cards. And then we started doing trading card shows where we were selling stuff and buying. And then it just got so big as a family hobby that we wound up opening up a store. And then when we came up, when we were thinking about names, the name of the store was the Wizard of Cards and Comics. That's really where ultimately the word wizard had come from was, you know, through that store. And and my mom ran the store and my dad worked there a little bit. And we would, me and my brothers would work there after school and on the weekends. And it was just such a wonderful kind of magical place where we just wanted to have fun, you know, buying and selling uh, comics and toys and cards and all that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. really neat. And it, it, we know that a lot of the people that went to help you in getting Wizard off the ground were there at the store. They, they were a part of that that family. Uh, now, one of those was Pat McCallum, who, by all accounts, you know, he was the editorial voice of Wizard once it became a full-fledged publication. But he started, right, as it was he the manager of that store? Yes. So when we had the store... We obviously had comic books and we hired Pat. He was a high school dropout to work uh, with us on the comic books. You know, he just had this knack and this knowledge, this encyclopedic knowledge of comics, but also 
he was so relatable for the customers because he spoke their language. And Pat was one of the most extraordinary, in my opinion, creative geniuses of our time. You know, he was just one of the most spectacular, extraordinary, smart, articulate, funny, dark humor, uh, <laughs> just just an incredible guy. And so when I graduated college, I actually, I couldn't get a job. It was a terrible job market. It was back in 1990. So I wound up working in the store and I just hated working in retail. I mean, it just, it just wasn't for me dealing with customers on a one-to-one basis. And as it turned out, it, I went to the University of Albany and I, I wound up working for the school newspaper and we were twice weekly nonprofit. And I wound up selling ads for them and making a lot of money selling ads for the school newspaper. And I came across a guy who was like, hey, you know, why don't you come work for me? You know, I'll pay you 10% commission. And I was like, no, nah, you know, like 10% is not like enough for me. He's like, yeah, he goes, you could be like me. And I get, I keep the 90%. And I was like, oh, I, that always <laughs> stuck in my head. that I like the 90% instead of the 10% side of it. So when I was at the store, I, I was noticing that we, we were selling a lot of comic books at the time. And uh, Pat was, you know, kind of the main driver of all of that, you know, because he had this relationship with the customers. But we had this uh, incredible advanced knowledge because the publishers like Marvel and DC and everybody else, they would give their info to Diamond. Diamond would spend weeks putting it together in a catalog, give the catalog to the retailers. We would then place our, look at the catalog, have some time, place our orders. Diamond then placed the orders with, with the publishers. Publishers would then print the books and then ship them. And that was a minimum three month window. But we knew at least a month and a half, two months ahead of time, what was coming out. So we knew what was selling, what we liked, and what was coming out way before everybody else did. So I was like, I said to Pat, I said, why don't we create a newsletter? You know, I said, I have a Mac computer. We have a photocopy machine. So, hey, why don't we just make a newsletter? So that's what we did. I, I created a newsletter and uh, Pat worked with me on it. We put together our hot lists. We wrote articles on it. And then we enlisted the customers. So there was a lot of guys, like kids, high school kids in the store that would always like, you know, tell us what they liked. And we'd get to say, hey, why don't you write about this? We know you like that. And then we did this newsletter and the newsletter just took off. Like we were giving it away for free. We'd print it through the copy machine, give it out to all the customers. And then we noticed that the fulfillment box, like the advanced order box that we would keep for people, the subscriptions basically went through the roof. I mean, we started selling two, three, five, 10 times the number of comic books wow. because once people knew what was coming out, and we gave them a heads up on like what the top 10 list and what was moving in the back issue market, all of a sudden, you know, our orders started going crazy. And then that's I was like, wow, you know, this is really something, you know, we need to do more. I mean, that's wild. That's like way ahead of its time with the subscription-based model of things. And it, it sounds like a lot of this stuff sort of formed organically just between the, the two of you kind of having these little ideas. You know, it's kind of funny, but like all the things I did in college on the side became my professions. I was an art minor and I was I was also a math minor, but I also worked for the school paper. So I went into publishing and it turns out I, you know, I was an economics major, but I wound up going into the art world too. So, you know, it's kind of funny. I, one of the things I talk about a lot with, especially up and coming kids going through the process, I'm like, obviously you got to go to school, but do as many things on the side as you can, because there's yeah. no consequence to it in college. So, you know, ultimately you're going to wind up finding something that might ultimately become your career. You're not just one thing. You're not just an economics major. You're an artist. You're you know a writer, a creative. Like especially, I, I'm a college professor, and I tell this to my students all the time. Just don't be 
X. Like there, if you like right. certain things, use that time to expand that knowledge and that skill set and just sort of grow that. You know, this sort of kind of goes into my next question. Like once you have this subscription thing going and you're like, things are starting to really ramp up and you're like, wow, we've got something here. What was like your most vivid memories of things? You know what? Let's make a magazine. Let's make that first wizard magazine. Like what was that thought in your head? There was a big disconnect in the market. And the disconnect, it was a very uh, trade-oriented business-to-business marketplace, right? So Diamond dealt with retailers, not with the consumers. Marvel and DC, as much as people think that it's a consumer companies, they're not. Those were trade companies. They didn't sell to the customer. They sold to the Diamonds. They had to sell their books to the retailer who sold them to the fans. Right. And, you know, you're talking about the pre-internet. So there was no social media. Right. There was no internet. We barely had email. Cell phones were, if we were lucky, they were the Nokias with the, with the <laughs> you know, with the text messaging, right? Like it wasn't what people thought it was back then. The, right. So they weren't, Marvel and DC were not consumer businesses. So they would create comic books based on what sold not what people liked, you know, so, so number one, there was a big disconnect there. And then the second thing is all the published, all the publications in that world were, were basically garbage. You know, at the time you had uh, comic buyer's guide, the CBG, which was a trade magazine. It was a fil- flimsy newspaper, you know, that went to retailers or, you know, kind of hardcore buyers, but it really didn't tell you what was coming out. There was Overstreet, which was once a year. And that kind of was mostly, uh, you know, aimed at the golden and silver age people. But again, at once a year, you know, how on top of the market can you actually be? Right. Um, and then there was like, uh, there was another rag that was out that was uh, kind of a newspaperish price guide at the time, but it was so far off. And so I decided to test a little price guide thought. So I came out with this uh, little ash can. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll see if I could find one. I think I might have it close by. And I put in there all the prices. And I and again, I had the photocopy machine. I stapled <laughs> it together. I mailed out a few hundred of them. And then in the back, there was like a survey where people would give us their feedback. So I probably wound up getting like 50 or 60 of them back. And then you're going to laugh. I called it the official wizard price guide. And I used the word official. And then I got a notice from Random House because they actually owned I was already getting legal letters before I started. <laughs> um, so then I get I get a letter from Random House saying that they own the word official with regard to price guides. Because really? they had the official coin guide, they had the official stamp guide. So I didn't realize that, but uh, so I, I told them <laughs> I won't do it again. Um, but yeah, so we had, you know, again, it was like one of those things where I, I got enough people to be like, you know, this is cool. And then I was like, all right, I just got to go start a, start a fanzine magazine at the time. One of the other things that we had going for us was um, my dad was not a professional artist, but my dad was a really great, really great illustrator. He was a great painter. He was great with his hands. We did a lot of woodworking as kids. Uh, we had a whole wood shop in the house. So my dad wound up having an affinity towards comic book art. You know, and again, we were teenage kids at the time. It's not like we could drive or just get on a plane. But my dad was always like, hey, let's go to San Diego. Let's go to this show. Let's go to that show. And we used to go to a lot of shows. And nobody knew what anybody looked like. You know, at the time, McFarlane was becoming, you know, really, really hot. We're talking about the mid 80s here. So we would just literally scrounge to find out wherever Todd was going to be. We were going to go and see if we could buy some art. And that's what we did. And Todd wound up having this rule that you could only buy three pieces at any one time. Hmm. Like, so we'd go to a show 
and my dad would buy three pieces from Todd. Now, chances are good they were covers. And my dad was paying like hundreds of dollars at the time, and which was a grossly yeah. high number because covers were going 50, 100 bucks. Nobody cared about new original comic art at the time. Right. It, was, it was really just not anything anybody paid attention to. So we wound up developing this really great relationship with Todd. And whenever he would come to New York to meet with Marvel, he would come to our store to do a signing and bring him in. So that's how we became friends with Todd. And then there was this kind of one moment in time where uh, Todd comes to the store and Marvel had announced that they're doing a new Spider-Man series. So Todd came to the signing. And then after the signing, Todd also liked to collect sports cards at the time, uh, or he might still, but he was a big hockey fan. And, all. you know, I mean, anybody that knows him knows that he's into that. Yeah. So uh, we said to him, like, what would you want for the cover to Spidey number one? So and he had he had the pencils for it, like photocopy, wow. he didn't have the originals with them. Um, and he showed it to us, you know, before anybody like in the world, other than anybody up at Marvel saw them. And they were just spectacular. Obviously, it was Spider-Man sitting in the in the webbing and stuff. Yeah. And uh, the most one of the most iconic Spider-Man poses of all time. Yeah. So we wound up trading him locks of like sports cards, like <laughs> Nolan Ryan rookies and Tom Seaver rookies and George Brett, like every like all like the coolest, best modern players and high grade cards. And um, and they were all like packed in the lucite, so they mm-hmm. looked like Monte Carlo poker chips. Yeah. So I, so I had like, a bunch of those as a kid. Yeah, so like Todd was on one side of the table and my dad and me and my brothers were all like covered over my dad's shoulder and Todd was like on the other side and we're like, like almost like we're all in. <laughs> so he said, look, when I get the covers in, I'll send it to you. But in the meantime, we literally gave him a briefcase, the briefcase that the cards were in just to carry the cards home. because like, <laughs> There's so many like, of them. You can have the cards and the briefcase. Yeah. So, so the reason I'm telling you that is that um, kind of giving the backstory on the origin of the cover to Wizard One, that's also become one of the most iconic covers. It's a collector's item now on eBay. People are like dying for that, that magazine, especially with being graded. Oh, people go nuts. many homage covers to it. Yeah. Yeah. People, people ask me that like, wherever I, when I go to the cons, people are always asking me to sign it and stuff too. So again, pre-Wizard, obviously it was my dad's birthday one year. So I call up Todd and I said, Todd, I said, hey, it's my dad's birthday. We really want to do something special for him. Would you draw him a picture of Spider-Man? You know, I'm sure you guys know him being in the comic business. Have you ever seen a McFarlane sketch ever? Like, no, he yeah. does. Like, it's not anything he's ever no. done or does or he doesn't do commissions. Very doesn't do commissions, like yeah. nothing like he's got one of the most if the prolific careers in the entire comic book industry of all time. And you won't find sketches from the guy. So he's like, yes, I'll do it for you. Because he wow. loved my dad. And my dad was a big supporter of his. And because he knew the store was the wizard. So he did was he did Spider-Man and the wizard. And he said, happy birthday to the wizard. And uh, so he did that piece. Wow. Yeah. And then years later, when I was thinking about, all right, like I want to start a magazine. McFarland's like as hot as could be. And, you know, what can I do to really you know, make this spectacular? And it was like, hey, maybe if we use that McFarland Spider-Man cover, that would be incredible. So I called up Todd and I was like, Todd, hey, can I use the art for the cover? He's like, yeah, no problem. I said, as a matter of fact, I'll send you some some cards. So I sent him some cards as like a thank you. (laughs) And and then I had it colored up. Yeah. And then that became the origin of Wizard One was this like incredible relationship that we had built with Todd well before any of Wizard Magazine started. 
That's yeah, cool. definitely got eyes on it. You know, and we've right. talked to Doug Goldstein and Brian Cunningham and talking about just being in your family kitchen, typing away, you know, Doug's typing up legal pads that Brian gave him of like little articles he was writing up on toys and things like that. So you guys are all working together, but the issues start coming out. You guys are doing amazing covers. You got Bart Sears doing covers. You got Eric Larson doing covers. You're you're just grabbing everybody you can. And the question I have is obviously the formation of Image Comics coincides with Wizard, you know, being released into the world. And that's a big boost in visibility for the magazine, especially in histories that have been written in the magazine talked about how Wizard 10, when you get the cable and shaft cover by Liefeld in there, like that was a huge boom. You put a trading card in there, all of a sudden, okay, we've kind of got a formula. People are really buying this thing. But I am curious because you you were present for a very iconic photo of, you know, all the image founders together and Hank Canals. We just interviewed Hank. So he talked oh, all about yeah, the yeah, photo and everything. That, yeah. <laughs> But what was your relationship with the Image Founders? You know, obviously you do Todd, but now you're starting to meet this whole group. How did you cultivate that and allow so much like exclusive information to come into Wizard from Image? Yeah. So look, I was a kid back then. You know, I started Wizard. I was 21. Wow. And I looked like I was 14, 15, 16. <laughs> like I looked like a kid too. And you know, a lot of the guys, they were in the same position. Todd wasn't much older. Jim Lee was is not only a couple of years older. Rob Liefeld and Silvestri. I mean, you know, Jim Valentino was a little bit older at the time. Eric Lard, like we were all kind of around the same generation, but we were also very, very young. We all loved the new stuff. You know, we all were kind of fixated on that. And I knew that I grew up on the new stuff. You know, I didn't, I mean, yes, I had an appreciation for the classics, but for me, it's, it, it wasn't the early guys that got me interested. It was the new guys. It was yeah. at the time it was, you know, Frank Miller and Tom McFarlane, right? It was like a lot of people like that were on the new side that got me excited. So when I was doing the magazine, we really focused on new, you know, what was new that was coming out. And those guys were the best sellers at the time. I was relentless, you know, at that time. I was calling them all the time saying, hey, let's do a cover. Let's do an interview. Want to show what's coming out. Send me this, send me that. I was just hounding them for it. And I became friendly with them, you know, and we weren't working a lot together because they still had to go through Marvel at the time. And I'm sure they were still kind of thinking about Image, even though nobody knew about it. Yeah, so I had just become friendly with them. And then I get a call one night because they were mostly West Coast based at the time. And uh, so I got a call one night. It must have been like midnight. I get a call on my primitive cell phone, whatever I had at BlackBerry at the time. And it was all the guys. And they're all on the phone kind of yelling and screaming. And I remember it was like Rob was mostly kind of talking. And he's like, look, Arab, uh, this is what's going on. You know, it's me, Jim, Todd, you know, Mark, whatever. We all just left Marvel and my heart sank. And I'm like, oh, shit, like there goes <laughs> there goes all the content we were we had planned. And they're like, no, no, no. We like we started a new company called Image and they go, we'd love for you to be the publisher. And I was like, wow. what? I was like, that's incredible. I said, but, you know, but I really love Wizard, you know, and I, I don't think I could run the magazine and work with you guys. And you guys have like the biggest egos in the world. I didn't say no right away, but I was just like, look, you know, I'm, I'm doing wizard. I was like, where are you guys? They're like, oh, I think they were at, in Malibu at the time. I think Mark <laughs> Celestri had a house or he's renting a house there. I said, I'll be there tomorrow and got a ticket like literally the next day and flew out there. And luckily, because I was East Coast, I got out there pretty early, met up with the guys. I had my camera and I took that picture and met with them and, and really did an interview with them. 
And uh, yeah, it was just one of the most extraordinary time. I mean, I knew that this was the most pivotal moment, at least in my life. You know, we weren't like we were that old. But at the time, the magazine was really struggling because we weren't resonating with the distribution and retail. We were resonating with the fans. But if you remember what I was talking about, it wasn't the fans that ran the business. It was the distributors and retailers that ran the business. So the fans loved our product, but the retailers weren't ordering it. So the distributors, right? So we had this kind of disconnect there that was going on. And then when this happened, everything in the world changed for us. And there was, again, there was no internet. So it wasn't like also that these guys, you know, they didn't have a voice. I mean, they had a voice, but they had no megaphone, right? So where were they going to, you know, promote what they were going on, right? They There was no direct response. There was no- No, you, no YouTube, no Twitter, no YouTube, nothing. No, yeah, no so. social media, nothing like that, right? And, you know, they needed to go through distribution, but the distribu- the distributors were paid and, you know, their, their bread and butter was Marvel in DC, right. you know? So are they going to, they're going to say, okay, Marvel, you just lost your biggest talent in the world. We're going to go support them. What do you think Marvel said to them? Right. They said- right. F you, you help them, yeah. you know, we're going to cut you off. Marvel and DC were, were so dominant, you know, at that time. Now, Marvel and DC, they were hard for us to work with because, you know, they saw me as a, as a kid and, you know, Wizard was doing okay. It was definitely making some waves, but, but it wasn't having an impact yet at that time. And so, you know, it was very hard to get things out of those companies. They were not in any rush. There was no other publication that they had to feel like they had to support. So there was no system set up for it. So then when Image came along, I was like, all right, guys, this is what we want to do. We're going to do this. And they were all like, yeah, of course, like we'll do everything. And then the other challenge that I knew I had was I, I at the at that moment in time, I like I instantly lined up. It was going to be Rob, Todd and Jim. Right. So we had 10 was Rob, 11. Oh, 11, I think was Jim. And then 12 mm-hmm. was McFarlane. I think with uh, Spawn. Yeah. So I knew that people were going to buy those three issues. And I was saying to myself, well, well, what can we do that when the next issue comes out, it's just, it's just never going to live up to the three in a row. So what can we do in 10, 11, and 12 that are going to get people to buy that 13th issue uh, where the orders won't go down and keep the momentum? And that's when it hit me to do trading cards. So then it was like, all right, let's do some trading cards. Let's do them in sequential order so that by the time you have three cards, you have to get the fourth card. So that's how the trading cards, that's how the polybagging came about. That's how this incredibly symbiotic relationship with Image just catapulted everything. And, and there was a lot of really good things that that emerged out of there. Number one, uh, Marvel and DC got insanely jealous over our coverage of those guys, you know, where <laughs> they didn't want to work with us, but yet they hated what we were doing with image. Right. You know, so I was like, so you guys give me stuff, you guys give me exclusives and you guys give me work ahead of time and I'll put it in the magazine. I'll put it on the cover. I never right. said I wouldn't do it with you. You just don't want to give it to me. You know, I really had a big ego, you know, back in those days, I, I had a set of <laughs> brass ones that I, I just didn't care. Like I was, you know, I was this young kid telling Marvel in DC, like, this is what I want. And like, either give it to me or I don't care. I'll just do more with the image guys. It it really didn't matter. People loved it. But you hit a couple of interesting points there. Like, you know, as a young entrepreneur, you had to be knocking on doors and, and being aggressive and reaching out to people and, and keeping them 
thinking of you. You know, it's 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 kind of funny. I was at New York Comic Con back in October and I was handing out, we have stickers and stuff like that. And I went around to the Terry Dobsons and I went to Jim Lee and spoke to a bunch of people and was giving them our like stickers and little business cards. And everyone speaks of Wizard with such reverence and like, oh, I love that. I love, you know, submitting this or doing that. Even Jim Lee, he like stopped his interview to chat with me for a minute just about Wizard Magazine. And he was just like, I just love those guys and their ambition and everything. And I look at it like as it's like leadership comes from the top, right? So if, if you have this aggressive, positive, go get them attitude, that trickles down to everybody to want to do more and push harder. And then, like you said, the Marvels and DCs get jealous because you're like, these, they're getting all these features of our former guys. Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting thing. And it's a lot of forward thinking on your part to make those moves of the trading cards and so on. Because we're, we, we've talked about them a million times about the features of trading cards were just such a big deal back then, which is kind yeah. of cool. So we, I tried not to let the political side get involved with the editorial side. You know, I really kind of shielded our company and the magazine from the backlash on the business side of things. I took that. That was really painful, you I'm know, sure. how, how these companies would want to treat us or and I just never let it affect that. And also, I belong to a lot of like kind of entrepreneur circles. And whenever I go into a room, you know, I always joke with myself that I'm like the biggest loser in the room. You know, now I've had a lot of successes, so I, I'm not like saying I'm a total loser, but I took a lot of chances. I called a lot of people and said, hey, I want to work with you that never returned my call. Right never wanted to work with us, never gave us anything. So we just had to work with the people that wanted to work with us. And if Marvel and DC and everybody else didn't want to work with us, I didn't care. I just worked with whoever did. And whoever said, yes, we did the best we could. We created an exciting you know, product that kept people excited and energized and giving our team the freedom to create and to be creative, you know, that came through. That was also kind of one of the biggest things, you know, that I always felt like we answered to the fans because they they were the people that paid our bills. We always had to be true to them. And if they saw we were having fun, then they were going to have fun. You know, if our editors and our people in our company didn't like it or thought it was a chore or a job, it was going to come through, you know, and we just kind of shielded our creativity from anything that could have affected, you know, the negativity out there. Right. I mean, we've seen so many videos or even articles of like just the hijinks in the office and the pranks people would pull. Oh, and, yeah. And people still laugh about it to this day, just the goofiness and the hijinks and stuff. And it's kind of funny because ultimately Wizard becomes a very influential magazine to the comic book industry. And I can't believe how many people are listening to our podcast talking about this magazine and subscribing and, you know, say, oh, I loved it. I have such memories. You know, we even have a Patreon where people can get the scans of old issues and look at it and they just love just that reminiscing part of it i can't believe people like like this stuff and you know did you say to yourself like i can't believe people are loving this so much did you ever feel like wow this is a thing well there's two parts to it one is the prank side of it i loved it i, I really supported that i mean it was just you know incredible like how exciting that was for me to see 
you know, because I, I wanted to create the environment, you know, that I'd want to be a part of or a company that I'd want to work for uh, also. And uh, I got in trouble twice with the pranks that they, <laughs> they, they pulled on me. One was every month uh, I'd write the publisher's letter and then they'd kind of put in their commentary and then sometimes they'd edit it on me and whatever. <laughs> so one time they wrote, I, I did my publisher's page and then they wrote in there that I that I own a mansion and a yacht and stuff like that, <laughs> right? And then people just, like people got offended because like every time I'd see people, they're like, Garb, how come you didn't invite me on your boat? And I'm like, I don't have a, I don't have a boat. Like, like where'd you get, where are you coming from? They're like, yeah, you have this, you have this yacht. I'm like, I don't have a yacht. You know, have you, and it was have so, you been to Congress, New York? There's so no funny. water around there. <laughs> For years and years, people are like pissed that I never invited them on my yacht. Uh, and then, and then one year there was a, um, an April Fool's issue and they yanked my publisher's page and made it an obituary. <laughs> So the magazine comes out and instead of my publisher's page, it's it's my obituary. Oh, no. <laughs> and so um, I was married at the time. My ex was pissed because <laughs> she had uh, all of a sudden some flowers started showing up at our house. No. <laughs> yep. She started getting started getting flowers and she's reading these cards and, and people are calling her saying, I'm so sorry. I just heard all the news. And she's like, what are you talking about? They're like, we heard Garrett passed away. She's like, no, he didn't. Like, she just, you know, she called me. She's like, what's going on? Like, people are calling me saying you died. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, nobody said anything to me. So I open up the book and I see what they did. And I'm like, oh, those motherfuckers. <laughs> like, but that was the worst one because that one, like, that one, like, really affected my my wife hated me at the time. I mean, I'm divorced now. I'm the best of friends, but but she was really pissed at that one. I thought it was hysterical, but that's oh. funny. Well, while we're on the topic of the big pranks, though, I do have to ask about one because on the Wizard Files, this has come up multiple times, people who were in the room and people who were reacting to it. And we want to get your side of this story. So there was an infamous meeting, you know, it was just like, you know, your your monthly meeting where everybody's getting together, the executives, editorial, everybody is together in this conference room. And then a dummy gets thrown off the roof going by the window and we're told everybody suddenly jumps up. And I just got to know, when this happens, what is your reaction and what was the aftermath for you? Well, I think I was the first one to jump because <laughs> because I was sitting at the head of the table, which faced out. And then we had uh, probably about a dozen people, six or seven on each side. So when it came to like who saw it, I saw it first. So I oh, jumped no. out of my chair and I'm like, what the hell? So I run to the window to see what's going on. And then I like, I think I bolted for downstairs and then get, got this, saw this body on the, on the pavement. <laughs> Obviously it wasn't real stupid blood and stuff everywhere, but um, oh my God. Yeah. Like my heart stopped. It was just, yeah. I mean, but that's, that's what made it. I mean, and, and you got to understand too, like I was still a kid at the time. It wasn't right. like, you know, I was a, I was a 45, 50 year old guy, you know, back then I was still only in my twenties, you know, maybe I was 30, like had this very kind of, childish uh kind of sensibility and, and and back then those kind of pranks and jokes were like commonplace i don't know if it was necessarily that extreme well, at they times, happened but... in my area i remember they would have like uh, a food eating contest yeah but that's, you know, that was a thing eat, like it... uh like a jar of mayonnaise and who could eat the <laughs> stick of butter and, and like and then they'd go around the office saying you know would you would you contribute like five bucks to see <laughs> this contest Right. So like people are like, yeah, for five bucks, I want to see someone eat a jar of mayonnaise or right? so, so it's like, 
You know, it's like, you know, so somebody would make, you know, yeah. if they were willing to do something really gross, you know, you know, they, they could make a few bucks. Yeah. And, um, you know, even though we were selling a lot of issues and we had a lot of fans out there, the media or the press against us was very negative. It was always very, very negative, very negative tone towards us. People had a, a huge disdain for us. Was it um, jealousy? Just like. Um, yes, it was all jealousy. They didn't like that we had the power that we had. They didn't like that we sold, that we had the voice, that we were getting things at the time. And maybe that's where it came from. But we were constantly fighting, you know, the negativity out there. We always kind of rose above it, but it was not pleasant uh, and roses all the time over there. You know, people were constantly taking shots at us for what we were doing with whether we were manipulating, we were on the take, we were on this, we were, we were getting paid under the table, they were doing favors. You know, it's like everything that you can imagine somebody accusing us of, that's what they were doing at the time. So we just had a kind of rise above it but it wasn't silent and it wasn't small it was very kind of loud and perpetual uh mm. out there so yeah it was we we had to deal with a lot of that kind of stuff a lot yeah. of backlash back in the time also you're starting to become influential in the industry itself like michael was saying like what was the first time you noticed like oh we're successful enough that what we say is now affecting things or you know we have the ear of the publishers there was always kind of pockets of things that would happen, uh, not necessarily one thing individually, other than maybe, you know, all of a sudden a book that we promoted, you know, did very well or something like that. And, you know, the thing is, is that because the market was doing very well, a lot of times people just didn't give us credit for stuff. You know, everybody thought it was them. Very rarely were people giving us credit for what we did to help. And that to me was kind of like a silent undertone of everything. You know, it was like, oh, you know, we're the artists and we're the writer, we're the creators of it. So we're the ones that made this so successful. When in fact, I, I don't want to deny their abilities, you know, but, but it took a lot to do that because also, you know, people forget at that time, it was a Marvel and DC world. Mm -hmm. It wasn't an independence world. It wasn't like independent books sold very well at all. Um, and secondly, independent comics had no secondary value. And I'm, right. I'm saying that generally not as an absolute. So when somebody wanted to buy a non-Marvel or DC book, you know, they had to be buying it under the guise of, I'm buying this because I like it, not because I think it's going to be worth something someday. And you got to understand back in those days, Nobody just read a comic book and then threw it out. Everybody collected comic books. Right. You know, I still, I just, I, I've got 35 boxes in my basement of comics. <laughs> right, right. And and 30 of them are worthless, but you're not yeah. going to throw them out because it's a comic book, right? Yeah. But yet it has no retail or no consumer value to it in the secondary market. It right. might have a lot of value too for sentimentality, but- Exactly. But Right. So but nobody threw comic books in the garbage when they were done with it. Everybody was a collector. And we did two things. Number one, we showed people that a comic book can, that's not Marvel or DC have a secondary value. But even more importantly, what we did was we were very, very pro creator rights at the time. Mm. So I, I almost think of it as the civil rights of the comic book world. So if you think about it, Marvel and DC owned all the big characters. They owned everything, unless it was licensed, but putting that aside, 
Marvel, Marvel and DC owned the characters and they treated creators, you know, like crap. It was like, you know, you're going to work for us and we own it and we'll give you some percentages, but you can't say or do anything. You're going to do exactly what we want. And if you don't, we're going to fire you. And that was the nature of that world back then. And the idea that somebody could create a character and then own it and achieve any kind of consumer or mass scale to it just didn't happen. It just wasn't in the cards back then. Wasn't right. in the comics back then. And one of the things that we did that, again, it wasn't so obvious, but it was very prevalent. And, and today, the entire comic book industry and the whole world has benefited from the fact, you know, that Wizard was very, very pro creator rights back then. And we showed people that it's okay to create your own comic book, to own your own comic book, and you can sell it and it's going to be worth it and you're going to like it. And there's a diversity out there and it doesn't need to be Marvel or DC. It could be anybody doing anything and it's okay. And I think giving that, you know, I almost joke, I use the word permission. It's like we gave permission to the fans that it's okay to buy the stuff right. because you're going to enjoy it and it could also be worth money and you're supporting a creator you know, in their creative endeavors, and they're going to own it. And it's not some corporate machine that's kind of behind it. And that's one of the biggest things that we've done in our entire history that I think has had the biggest effect. Actually, there's other things too, I'll get into that too. But that was, that was kind of one of the biggest effects that we've had in the entire world. Yeah, well, it, it, that that is very true. Obviously, you see what's going on with Kickstarter and everything else these days. But I want to ask you also in this, because you're talking about not getting the credit sometimes. And some, you know, very influential people who did give you credit, though, uh, were Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti. And your yeah. part in getting them over to Marvel Knights, what became Marvel Knights. And eventually this leads to Joe Casada becoming editor-in-chief. Can you tell us just real quickly how you were involved in making that happen? Because we're covering that in the magazine on the, the podcast at this point in time. So Yeah, so first of all, Joe and Jimmy, love them, Jim, love all these guys. Joe and Jimmy back in the day, I, I just, I knew them because I lived in New York. I'd meet them at the shows and they just had the greatest energy. I, I just loved those guys. They had an enthusiasm and a love for comics and they were going against the grain and they just, they just had a an enthusiasm for the industry. And I just, I just loved it. I loved talking to them and they were talented too, right? They, they had the talent to back up the material and, and their attitude uh, towards comics. And I just loved it. And I was a big collector of uh, Joe's art and stuff like that and so then marvel went into bankruptcy if people remember mm -hmm. and there were three titans that at the time that were fighting for control of marvel you had obviously ronald perlman you know who's controlling marvel as a public company but he was the largest shareholder so he was kind of the, the the guy that was backing the whole thing to begin with then you had ike perlmutter who owned toy biz mm -hmm. who was making a bid for marvel at the time he had a, a perpetual royalty-free license to do the Marvel toys. Hmm. Um, so he had a very big stake, you know, in the success of Marvel. And then you had Carl Icahn, who was a corporate raider, who when Ronald Perlman was at Marvel, he was selling bonds to raise capital. And he was using his stock as a stopgap on the bonds. And what happened was Marvel stock had plummeted so much that the bonds were losing value. I'm making this as simple as I can. Bonds, it's cool, though. This is interesting. Yeah, though. Carl Icahn was buying the bonds in the secondary market 
for a discount, a huge discount, because then he can convert the bonds to the stock and then control the company. Right. So he was playing the kind of the corporate raider task of trying to get it in there. And at the time, Marvel was bleeding cash. They officially went into bankruptcy. And what happens when you go into bankruptcy, the judge appoints a trustee. And what he also did was he appointed someone to run Marvel at the time because there were three warring factors and all those three people. They actually wanted Marvel to become bankrupt. The irony is that they didn't want Marvel to do well. They, they got to the point where they all wanted Marvel not to do well. Yeah. So that the judge would accept one of their buyout terms. So the goal of the three people, these three billionaires at the time, was to destroy Marvel because they all had their own self-interest. Then you, you had a guy that the judge brought in, and his name was Joe Calamari. I don't know if you know that name yeah. or what have you. But right. Joe was a dear friend at the time, and they installed Joe into running Marvel. And Joe is a business guy. Yeah. So he starts making Marvel work. He starts firing this group, getting rid of these expenses, cutting that. So Joe is one of my best friends. So like, I'm talking to Joe, like, all right, Joe, like, cause he, Joe wasn't like so deep into what was going on over there. He just knew the business side of Marvel. And, you know, so he got his teeth in there. So Joe was calling me and I was seeing Joe all the time. And he was asking my advice, <laughs> like, what can we do here? What can we do there? So I was like behind the scenes, you know, working with Joe on what's going on in Marvel. Joe is now harboring the cash. They're not bleeding anymore. So the three Titans are getting really pissed at him. So he would call me up and he'd be like, he'd just have dinner with Carl Icahn and Carl Icahn and he would imitate Carl's voice. And he'd be like, Joe, you fucking <laughs> yelling at him in these restaurants. And the and the promoter guys, they hated him because, you know, they wanted the, that business, and, you know, and then Perlman, they were hating him because, you know, because they didn't need the restructuring plan like they did. So all of a sudden, Joe was turning around the place. So we were talking about editorially. And I said, Joe, you know, there's these two guys. I said, I love them. I said, they're just amazing. I said, you just got to figure out how to bring them into Marvel and to work on stuff. So that's when Joe was like, he was telling me about, he's got this space up, up on the top floor by the roof. It's empty. Nobody's using it. I said, great. So he's like, he calls me up and he's like, I'm going to bring in uh, Joe and Jimmy. We're going to start something called Marvel Nights. And we're going to give them that space and they're going to have that rooftop and all that stuff. So that's how Marvel Knights came about Wow, back in the day. And then the second part to that was, you know, they get through bankruptcy and they installed another guy. Ike winds up winning and they install uh, Bill Jemis, you know, to be the president and CEO of the company, who is another one of my best friends. Believe it or not, they actually wanted me in there. They, they called me. I got a phone call asking if I wanted to you know, run Marvel. And I, I passed on that, you know, as, as lucrative as that would have been for me at the time. You know, I, I didn't want to get involved in all the politics that were happening over there. It's a lot of stress, too. It's it a was, lot. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, it, I saw what my friend Joe just went through and I was like, I just wouldn't survive because I'm not a I, I wasn't that type of corporate person. I, I wouldn't be able to do what I would want to do you know, having to report in on the on that side of it. So actually, they wound up hiring Bill. And Bill was one of my best friends in the world at the time. And then even when he was starting to restructure, he was like, Gab, we got to bring in a new editor in chief. He's like, this place is a mess. He's like, here's my list of candidates. And one of them was Joe. And I was like, Joe, I'm like, he's the best. He's great. Then weeks later, you know, Joe's running Marvel. And wow. uh, I couldn't have been more happy for him. He deserved it. He's one of the most talented guys. I mean, you know, not, you know, not just as an artist, but just a visionary, you know, in order to run these companies, you have to be visionaries beyond your skill set of what 
either made you famous or what people like you for. And Joe had that quality about him and he had the personality for it. And because he had the respect of the talent. You know, when you have the respect of the talent, when you're one of them, you know, then the talent's going to respond to you. And then they did. And then, you know, between Gemini's and Joe and I mean, obviously, there's lots of, you know, drama that happened over there, too. I won't get into any of that. But there was a lot of magic that happened, you know, over there because of it. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, what's kind of nice to hear is like, not just like the influence of Wizard, but like people valued your opinion as well, because you came from it from a genuine place, not as a fan, but also as a business person. And I love that sort of genuine connectivity of people and, and the communication. I mean, if you, people ever t look into the, the whole background of the bankruptcy thing, it's a wild story. And to hear this perspective, I, I'm just blown away. And I think it's fascinating. It also shows sort of the influence that Wizard had on the industry at that time, too, because they're looking at you like you're running this well-oiled machine at this point and things are going well, which is super cool. <laughs> Speaking of super cool, how about those stories we've gotten so far about the formation of Wizard, the formation of Image Comics, Garib's involvement in the Marvel bankruptcy, being offered the top spot, and all sorts of things? I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, we are only halfway through the interview. We asked Garib for just an hour of his time. He gave us two. So we're going to give you a day to process all these fantastic stories, and then we will be right back with part two this week. We're talking Wizard World Convention. We're talking Toy Fair and the other spinoff magazines. So much more to come. So make sure that you're following us on social media at Wizards Comics everywhere, but Instagram, which is at Wizards underscore comics. Make sure that you are also subscribed on whatever podcatcher you're using so it automatically downloads. You do not miss it. We're very, very excited for you to enjoy the rest of the Garib Sheamus interview. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.